this is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our bi-weekly podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. We have on the line Dan Schilling, the author of several publications about building place-based tourism in New Mexico. And so when we're thinking about uh, shopping local as local Taosanos, we also want to... Uh, see how we can augment our economy through our tourism and improve our tourism. So I want to introduce Dan Schilling. He was uh, recently here in Taos. I'll let him uh, introduce himself and his background. Dan, are you there? Yes, I am, Jim. Morning. Good morning, and thank you for joining me this morning. It's not so, uh, it's not quite so cold in Phoenix. I was just <laughs> gonna, I was just gonna ask about that. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. It's probably going to be seventy today or thereabouts. Uh, for me, that that sounds perfect. I lead a photography workshop in Cuba every November, and so uh, it was. It's mm-hmm. been quite a brutal uh, return uh, after being in Havana at uh, at ninety degrees, which for me I love that, and then coming back to Taos and it's and it's so cold. Well, Dan, um, tell us a little bit about, about your background. Well, I'm born and raised in Pennsylvania, and one thing the draft was good for that it caught me in the late 60s and got me out of Pennsylvania. I probably would have been you know, born and raised there and died there had not I been forced out to see the rest of the world. And when I came back, I knew I didn't want to stay there. I ended up in Arizona. Uh, I had taught high school for a while, thought I wanted to be a college professor and uh, needed more degrees, and my GI Bill had run out, but Arizona State had offered me a full scholarship. So I ended up in Phoenix in 1980 and thought I would get my degree <laughs> and leave. And, uh, you know, here I am almost 40 years later, still here. But and when I was working on my uh, degree, I stumbled into a job at the Arizona Humanities Council. And every state has a humanities council. You know, they're the sort of the stepchildren of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And they fund history and the arts and literature and, you know, educational programs in in the humanities. And uh, I thought it would be a part-time gig and I would, you know, work there for a couple of years while I ended up being the director and stayed there almost 20 years. And what was your degree uh, in that you were working on? I'm sorry, just to step back a bit. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm a literature guy, Tim. Okay. Yeah. So I was working on a degree in lit that really has nothing to do with Arizona. That's sort of the irony. I I was always sort of in, you know, English literature and British literature, but I still teach it, you know. Uh, But when you work at the Humanities Council, by necessity, you sort of become a, you know, not an expert, but knowledgeable about a lot of history. And so, you know, my my work really is more and more in history and culture and specifically environmental issues as well. My new book that just came out actually in October, uh, when I say my book, I just co-edited it, it, but it's, uh, it's called Traditional Ecological Knowledge and Cambridge University Press just published it in October. And it's a collection of 14 essays by mostly Native American authors about environmental issues. Uh, and here at Arizona State, where I still work off and on, I'm retired, but I, I still do some teaching over there. Uh, we have a program called the Global Institute of Sustainability. It's one of the largest sustainability studies programs in the world. And so I work with them. And my concern, Jim, always is that when we're talking about things like sustainability, environmental policy, that we not forget the humanities, you know, that it's not just a technical and scientific undertaking, but there is, you know, there's history we need to consider, there are philosophical and moral and ethical issues, there's religious dimensions to these conversations, and that's why this whole trend now and looking back at indigenous knowledge has become much more uh, popular in these sustainability studies programs. 
because I think the idea is, you know, you know, these people were here for ten to thirteen thousand years in Arizona and New Mexico, and they didn't mess the place up too badly. <laughs> Maybe there's some knowledge there that we can learn from. So the new book, the traditional ecological knowledge book, that's what it really talks about. It sort of surveys the history of indigenous attitudes toward the land and then how people are, you know, taking that knowledge. And through things like biomimicry and whatnot, they're, they're adapting native knowledge, indigenous knowledge to contemporary environmental issues. Mostly, you know, beginning with the, the, with the uh, principle that we need to respect the place that we live in and not just see it as a, as a, you know, a dollar sign, not just see land as a commodity, as, right. you know, the great ecologist Aldo Leopold said, and of course we share Elder Leopold with New Mexico, <laughs> but you know, you know, when he was writing his great essays there in the 30s and 40s, and then certainly Stan County Almanac, uh, this added this idea that we need to think ecologically. We need to think that you know humans are just part of this system. They don't they don't dominate it. They don't own it, etc. And so I got into that kind of work really in the 80s and 90s, uh, looking at the history, you look at environmental history and whatnot in Arizona. That led me then into tourism, certainly in by the late 80s and early 90s, because there was a trend, and there still is a trend in tourism circles, uh, to use, and I want to say that word in the best sense of of, <laughs> to use our history and our land, our environment, our culture as a tourism product, and we, we know that more and more people come to the Southwest specifically for that. I mean, that's why, you know, they're leaving Michigan. They don't want to just see something they can get in Michigan. And so they look at the Southwest, you know, for, because it's unique, it's different, it's got, you know, different cultures, certainly has different landscapes than what they're used to. So that trend started, you know, they used to call it cultural tourism. They still do. Cultural tourism, heritage tourism, ecotourism is probably the granddaddy of them all. That word is actually coined in 1988, I believe. And so this stuff is all new. And when I stepped into this arena, what I saw was that, uh, yes, there's a, there's a possibility of using Arizona's unique culture and history as a tourism attraction, but we need to do it right. And what I saw was it being misused that, you know, they were exploiting our history, our land, our culture, and not really putting anything back into it. And it was really just a, a commercial transaction. Let's, let's try to use the Grand Canyon to get a lot of people to come to Arizona and not really put any effort into saving the Grand Canyon or into saving our history and culture. So we had written, you know, I would say we, I mean at the Arizona Humanities Council, we worked a lot with our our uh, Arizona Office of Tourism, they were very sympathetic to our argument because they knew if we destroyed the very thing people were coming for, it ultimately destroys the tourism market. And we did several studies in collaboration with the Office of Tourism in the state of Arizona to, first of all, quantify who was coming here and were they coming for our history and our culture and our land. And sure enough, after a two-year study, one of the things we found and this got the attention of the tourism industry, by the way. One of the things we discovered was that people who come to Arizona for sort of cultural and, and, and uh, environmental experiences stay on average about four times longer than people who come to play golf. Right. And that sort of woke up the industry to the fact that this thing we were calling ecotourism and, and cultural tourism was a real thing, and it had real financial implications. So... 
that's how this all got started. And I worked in that arena for about a decade trying to help museums and, you know, state parks and national forests and all the land people and all the cultural people, trying to help them understand what tourism was about because most of them, you know, they don't have any training in, in hospitality. So in the beginning, it was trying to forge relationships between the cultural community and the uh, tourism community. And that proved to be very, very difficult. And I ultimately saw that there was something missing. And that's how the Civic Tourism book came about, was the search for what was missing in that equation. That's a long introduction, Jim. I'm sorry. But that's no, that's got, great. That's because, how I got here. Because <laughs> that's exactly what we're talking about. This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust, and I'm speaking with Dan Schilling. He is the editor of a collection of, of essays called Traditional Ecological Knowledge, out recently from Cambridge University Press. And Dan, what is the the other book that you have out on the poetry of place? Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, that's the book I was speaking at in Taos last month. Uh, it's called Civic Tourism, uh, The Poetry and Politics of Place. And that's the book that came out of the study. We had, uh, in early 2000, or 2003, actually, I left the Humanities Council. I'd been there about 20 years because I knew I got very interested in this conversation about how do we use our history and our culture and our environment appropriately for economic development. So I applied for a federal grant and received it to do basically what turned out to be a three-year study of how do you do this work and how do you do it right. And initially, when we applied for the grant, to the feds, I just said, well, we're going to do this work in Arizona. And I left Phoenix for a couple of years and moved to Prescott because the Prescott's pretty much like Taos, you know, it's one of these cities that has, has an intimate downtown, it has history, it has culture, it has great environmental, you know, landscape, a lot of hiking, a lot of outdoor activities. So Prescott was sort of a great canary in the coal mine, so to speak, to kind of test this stuff. So I moved to Prescott for a couple of years. And the grant, basically what we said to the feds was, look, there's a good argument to be made for using history and culture and land as a tourism attraction. We have a lot of financial studies to back that up. But we also know that if we do it wrong, we can destroy, you know, whether you're attracting people to come to a park or a lake or a historic downtown like Taos. We can also, you know, muck up the thing if we don't do it right, if, if numbers becomes the sole, you know, indicator of success, if, if it's all about just get more and more and more and more. That can't be the approach. And that's kind of what I saw working with tourism and chambers of commerce and whatnot. It was always just more and more and more. Let's just get more people to come. Without much thought, I should say, to, well, what, what's the consequences of all these people? I mean, how do we do it right? And so we made the argument in our federal grant that we have, uh, we have a good case for using, you know, culture and heritage as a tourism attraction, but we really don't know how to do it right. So what I did in those two, what turned out to be a three-year project, was I traveled around the country and just met with people and organizations and communities that thought they were using ecotourism as an economic tool or thought they were, you know, using cultural and heritage tourism or sustainable. There's a lot of terms for this now, Jim. There's a whole, they, they sometimes call it just alternative tourism, right? right? Is, you know, where you're, you're using your unique, your, your community's unique access, assets to attract people. You're not trying to just build another 
water park or a golf course or whatever. So, and there's multiple layers of this also. I, I worked with the mm-hmm. National Geographic Society a couple of years ago on the oh. Four Corners Geotourism Project. So, mm-hmm. so it was called Geotourism. Yep. But yeah, there's there's all these multiple layers. There's the heritage tourism, the ecotourism, mm-hmm. the geotourism. So they're all, and, and oftentimes you have multiple initiatives under mm-hmm. different labels going on that really are almost kind of the same thing or very similar. They, they really are, and I don't mean to uh, dismiss those other ones. I know the geotourism people very well. I, you know, that was kind of being born when civic tourism was coming about. And right. So I used to go back. I used to go back to D.C. and I met with. I would have Jonathan Tortolot from National Geographic come out to my conferences and vice versa. We're all talking about the same thing, right. which is that we, you know, communities have a unique asset, and uniqueness and distinction is what attracts people, not sameness. I mean, they can get a Walmart anywhere, right? They're not, they're not you know, coming to Taos to, 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 a, to go to your Walmart. They're coming to Taos because it's unique, different, distinctive. It's got, you know, environmental beauty and cultural beauty, et cetera. And so how do you package that and how do you use that? And our argument, and this is what... This is why the book's called Civic Tourism, by the way. In the beginning, we didn't have a word for this. We just knew there was a missing component or there was a missing step in this process somewhere. Because what was happening, Jim, was, yeah, things like ecotourism took off. They really did. But the, the product itself, that is, whether it's a state park or a federal park or a, you know, a historic downtown, the product itself sort of got forgotten in this conversation. And as I say in all my talks, if, if place is so important, and there's all kinds of studies, you know this, that, that sense of place is so important for quality of life and economic development. If it is, why are our investments in place dwindling? And, you know, when you talk to people who run museums or, or land trusts or, you know, na- or, or uh, Main Street programs and whatnot, you know, they're always struggling, and yet they are the tourism product. So one of our keys, one of our goals, really, is to get more investment in the product itself, whether it's, you know, national parks, state parks, you know, historic downtowns, arts organizations, that sort of thing. And they're woefully underfunded in most communities, yet the tourism industry depends on them and, you know, puts them on their brochures and their magazines and whatnot, yet there's really no effort to help them, and that's one of our key and what we found, the reason that there wasn't happening, and this is where the civic tourism comes about, is that we haven't really engaged the people in the community in this conversation. So it tended to be very much a, a conversation between the tourism industry and the people who run the parks and whatnot, leaving out the very people who live there in the community, who know their communities, love their communities, uh, often know more about their communities than the people in tourism and whatnot. So... Civic tourism is really a tool. And when you talk about all those other ones, like geotourism and cultural tourism and whatnot, I, I always tell communities, look, if you're doing, let's say, ecotourism, you've got a whole ecotourism initiative going on, I'm not trying to kibosh that or, or you know, say don't do that. Civic tourism is what makes it a little bit different from these others, is that we're really a tool to help you do what you do better. And so if you think you're doing cultural heritage tourism, great. Keep that program going. And through this book and, you know, we have an online presence and whatnot where, you know, we have exercises and best practices. And here's a way that we can help you do what you do better. And it begins by engaging the people who really live there in the community to get out of our boxes. 
Absolutely. And Dan, how does civic tourism distinguish itself? You know, here in Taos, we have had multiple planning sessions and and work groups, and we just completed a year-long process called Strong at Heart, which unfortunately ended up being a bit controversial. And we've recently started off with the Main Street project, getting confirmed as a Main Street community, and uh, a board of directors is being set up, and that whole process is being organized in order to uh, enhance our, our historic district and our, and our downtown. Um, so Taosinos are extremely used to and familiar with these various planning processes. And so I'd like to understand what might, how might civic tourism distinguish itself from what we've already done? Right. Good question. And I work with a lot of communities that are doing exactly what Taos has done. I mean, most towns have a Main Street program. A lot of towns have what they call, you know, visioning going on, or they call it like Sedona 2025, and they're planning ahead for, you know, and that's great. And that's all well and good. But we begin with a couple of principles, Jim, that you just got to grasp first. And one is the, the whole question of what does success look like? And that is where I think some training in the tourism industry itself is helpful. Because let's face it, many people who, who you know, either majored in tourism and hospitality and end up running, you know, uh, motels and hotels and gift shops and whatnot, uh, many of them have no training in this initiative that we're talking about, you know, whether it's culture and history and, and whatnot. So we recommend that they're all... They're, bunch of different names for these things. Sometimes I think there's one in Tucson called the Ambassador Program, but it's helping the tourism industry to understand the assets that it has in its community. For instance, one of the things I'll often do, Jim, is I'll, I'll arrive in a town and I'll, you know, get my gas filled up at the gas station or I'll, I'll go to a restaurant or something. And the first thing I'll ask us is, let's say I ask the wait staff, Where's your historical museum to see if they even have any knowledge of that, if there's any collaboration at all between the tourism industry and the cultural community? So it begins with understanding this the whole question of what do we mean by success. And that the first principle in my book is called Rethink Economics. And it's a hard concept. And you mentioned, you know, that your other program was controversial. Some of this stuff is because we're talking about people's homes, really. We're talking about how do we share your home with strangers for economic development. That's really what you get to do in the tourism industry. And it should be a noble enterprise. Wow, I get to, you know, I get to share towels with strangers and, and make money off of it at the same time. But it goes beyond the typical commercial transaction. And that's why we call this rethinking economics, because the tourism industry needs to look at some of the models of contemporary economic development. You know, they have all kinds of terms, Jim, like the new economy and the heritage economy and the creative economy. And the idea is that it's just not more is better. It's just not, you know, let's get more people to come to Taos and spend more money. Uh, That might be good for a small segment of the tourism industry, but it's often not good for the people who live there. Uh, they don't like what tourism has done to their towns in many cases. And they're not really experiencing the benefits of all this, you know, churning of people coming and going. That's going, the benefits, tourism tends to be a, what they call a leaky industry and in that the, the profits go elsewhere. They don't stay in town. And that's why your buy local programs are so important. So we begin with this concept of rethinking economics. And what I do, Jim, is like I did one in Taos when I was there. I, we, I do a half-day workshop 
on how do we help people understand that it's just not more is better. You could actually have fewer people coming to Taos, and if they stay longer and spend more money, that's that's good for the community. It's a better impact. The tourism industry. Yeah. So it's a question of how do you, you know, this whole thing, idea of rethinking. Uh, and that's a challenge because you're going you're gonna to run up against the old, what they call the Chicago-style model of economics, which is just get a lot of people to come and spend money and get a lot of people to come and spend money. There's a reason that we call towns like that tourist traps, by the way, right. is that it, you know, people come, they, they come, they're like locusts, they come a lot, but they don't tend to stay because the product has been so compromised. And we have examples of towns like Tombstone, for example. I mean, most, most cities would give their eye teeth to have that kind of name recognition for, for tourism development. But the average stay in Tombstone is about two hours. You know, people come, they buy a rubber tomahawk or something or a T-shirt and a bowl of yogurt, and then they move on because the product itself is not really that good. And they go stay in places like Bisbee because that's quaint and historic and distinctive and hasn't been all tarted up yet. So that's the first thing is this argument about what we mean about rethinking economics. And that's a tough sell for many people in the tourism industry. But the, the very next step, and this is why it's called civic tourism, is that we need to engage the people who live in our communities. When we first started this and you would go to a town and you would say, well, we're going to do a meeting or a town hall or a charrette or something on tourism development in your town. You could tell just by the way people looked and sat in the room who who was the tourism defenders, you know, the Chamber right. of Commerce would get up and they would talk about all the wonderful things that tourism does and how much money it brings, et cetera, and all the new restaurants. And then on the other side of the room were the old timers, the people who had lived in that town for 30, 40, 50 years, and they would just gripe about traffic and crime and congestion and higher prices. And there wasn't really a dialogue going on. It was really a debate. It was pretty ugly in some towns. You can imagine. This. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We've had these discussions I, here. I'm sure you have. Yeah, I've, I've been to Taos enough to know, and I've talked to the folks in Taos enough to know that, yeah, there, there are some tensions under, under the water there. But before I got into tourism, and this is, this is how this all got to the, to the civic part, when I was at the Humanities Council, you know, one of our roles at Arizona Humanities and, and the Humanities Council in New Mexico and every other state is to foster community conversations. Sometimes they can be conversations about very difficult stuff, whether it's immigration or the management of the forest or water issues. They tend to be explosive conversations. And so I started working with organizations to help us figure out, oh, how do we have a dialogue and not a debate? And through that, and I did about, you know, we did about 10 years of that, worked a lot with the Kettering Foundation, by the way, in Ohio, which is a national, international foundation that helps communities have civil conversation and gives you the tools to do that. And so when I stepped into the tourism arena and we were going around doing these workshops and whatnot, I saw that there really wasn't any dialogue going on there. It was just all people griping at one another. So that's what I think distinguishes civic tourism from all these other models. All the other models say to engage the community, you know, you've got to have the community's voice in whatever you do because they live there. And they're often more affected by tourism development than anybody. But the other brands of tourism, I don't think, give you the tools to do that. And so that's one of the things we do in civic tourism. And one of the workshops I do is, you know, how do you have this conversation? What's it look like? What are the questions? What are the ways into it? And so we set up the models for that kind of conversation. The other thing, and this is why the book's called, part of the book anyway, is called The Politics of Place, Jim, is that we need to be smart politically about this. And 
you know, I had uh, I had actually been on the board of the Arizona Office of Tourism, and I chaired their advocacy committee, which meant I went down to the legislature every year, and I lobbied for the budget for the Arizona Office of Tourism. And here's the way that argument goes in most states, and certainly was in Arizona, which is you go in, you talk to your legislator, and you say, look, for every dollar you give us in tourism development or tourism marketing in Arizona, we'll show a 6 or an $8 you know, benefit. And that's a pretty common argument. And, it, and it's true. I mean, it is true. Right. But the problem is, and I remember sitting in a, in a legislator's office, a guy from Yuma, and he said to me, well, Dan, that's a great argument, but everybody makes that argument. The schools make that argument. The healthcare people make that argument. It's always about give us more money and we'll be good for the economy. And uh, Jim Carruthers, Senator Jim Carruthers, said to me, well, Dan, what else do you got? <laughs> what else can tourism do? And that's what set the light bulb off, because we have been thinking of tourism only as an economic tool. And what we realized is we needed to think of tourism as a tool, not just for economic growth, but to help communities preserve, well, first of all, to identify, and then preserve, protect, and enhance what they love about their place. So it's a complete frame flip. And it's really difficult for people, for many people, especially in the tourism industry, who see their industry as an economic, you know, engine. And that's true. We don't mean to dismiss that. But what if you can say to this industry and to to communities, look, yeah, you can use tourism as an economic tool, but if you do it right, it's going to help you preserve your history. It's going to save your threatened parks and your forests and your lands. It's going to uh, engage and bring together your community. So it has a social dimension to it as well. And this goes way back to, you know, some of the earliest uh, movements in the tourism industry, by the way, were not about making money. They were about bringing people together and sharing our history and our culture. And when people understand other people's history and culture, they're less inclined to, you know, let's say go to war with them. Right, right. (laughs) Mark Twain famously said that travel is, is fatal to prejudice and bigotry. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, yeah, the more that we understand others, the more we are, you know, we have empathy for them. And so that became really our sort of calling card, is that, yeah, we'll, talk, we'll help you economically, but we're also, if you practice this right, you're, it's going to be better for the people who live there. And that's one of those big frame flips that's really hard for people is, Traditionally, tourism is thought of as something that serves strangers, right? How do, we, how do we make this place accommodating for strangers? And what we're saying is, well, yeah, you can do that, but also think about this industry as something that serves the people who live there. And for the most part, most people, and I'm sure this is probably true of Taos, they don't give much thought to tourism or they think it's this thing that, you know, just sells trinkets and tchotchkes and fast food and hotels and whatnot. But if you don't get ahead of this thing and shape it and frame it the way you want it, it can destroy your community. And we have a lot of evidence of that, of, you know, where, where, where tourism went into a little town and it, and it became, you know, a popular little town. And then all of a sudden you turn around in 20 years and you don't recognize the town anymore. Right. Well, and, you know, Taos, as you well know, has this unique history 
or I think it's unique. Maybe I should pose it as a question to you because from the get-go, Taos has been a place of people from multiple different cultures coming here, interacting. Originally, it was for trade around furs and other items, uh, Santa Fe Trail extension and uh, the trade with, uh, with, with Missouri and the overland trade. And then um, even early on, as far back as the, you know, the, the mid-1800s, Taos was sort of a destination, and it became early on a destination for arts and for, uh, for painters and so on and so forth. So we have this, what I think is unique history, where we've kind of always been a tourist town mm-hmm. of one sort or mm-hmm. another. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt about it. Taos has, a, by the way, I mean, if, if I were going to do this work, I would be in Taos. You, know, you have such great potential there. And I don't have to tell you that, whether, whether it's the history, you know, you just recited, or the uh, beautiful, you know, the skiing and the hiking and the camping. and All our public and lands, the wilderness All areas, the national lands. monument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're rich. Yeah. I, I, when I was there last month, I camped out a couple nights out at, you know, Wheeler Peak colder than heck. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, no, I just I just love the area. And uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, you get these, uh, I love the whole Mabel Dodge story, you know, that, and, and one of the things that uh, I've often mentioned, uh, I, I do study and, and write quite a bit about Aldo Leopold, who was there right outside of Taos. His cabin is still there in Trace Piedras, yep. when I was outside of town, when he was, you know, heading up the Carson. And there, there must have been just a fantastic, you know, sort of artistic and ecological and cultural, whatever the word is there, you know, milieu in Taos at that time, because you got all the, you know, you got the writers and the painters and whatnot there in Taos, and you got Leopold out there doing his thing. Uh, I, would, I would love sometime to actually work on that, you know, those, those, those connections and not not just one person, you know, not just like Mary Austin or whatever, but how they all that spider fit together web. and how, yeah, yeah, there, it must have been, you know, re, and the more I go to Taos and, you know, go to the museums and learn about the people, I think, my goodness, what it would have been like to have been here in the teens and 20s. And right, and right. Well, even now, uh, but, you know, we're, we're just want to throw this out there. It, the, the amount of creativity and the, 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 the creative people in this town it, mm-hmm. It's incredible. I travel extensively and have traveled extensively, and it's it's such a unique spot because of the people that are here and the amount of creativity mm-hmm. that's still going on. And you want to keep that. That's the challenge, right? right. Uh, you want to, in a way, use that creativity and that the, the arts and the, the science that's there, you know, the land and the ecological studies, the environment, uh, the historic downtown. You mentioned the Main Street program. Uh, you want to use that as your identity in a way because, it, I mean, it is. That is your identity. And, uh, you know, position that as a, as a, quote, tourism attraction. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way. I mean that in a good way, right? But at the same time, how do you use that, you know, attract people to come to Taos to to enjoy your land and your history and your culture and whatnot, but then take the benefits of that interaction of the people coming there and the money that they're leaving and put some of that money back into the product. See, this is our, our third, you know, sort of principle. We have this first principle of you got to rethink what you mean by economic development because it's not just more is better. The second principle is you need to 
you know, engage the people in the community, in the conversation. And the third principle, then, is eventually we got to get around to this sort of political part, the politics of place, as I call it. We need to learn to be better advocates and ambassadors for what it is we do. And, you know, I've, for 30-some years, I've lobbied and argued for more money for parks. You know, I was on the National Grand Canyon Association board for a long time. And I know they don't have the money to do what they do, what they need to do. But we're not very good at it, I guess is what I'm saying, is actually making our own argument for our museums and our parks and our lands and whatnot. And the tourism industry, you know, isn't as good at it as well. It keeps doing this thing of, you know, give us a dollar and we'll give you back six. Uh, We just need to be better advocates, you know, at the political level, whether it's arguing to your city council about why you need a Main Street program. And there's all kinds of evidence out there that Main Street programs are tremendously, you know, uh, tremendous economic drivers in communities. But it is about investments. And that's our third principle is, you know, we call it invest in the story. Figure out what your story is, first of all, because who gets to say? As you know this, Jim, in, in history, you know, often a lot of voices get left out. Right. Because we often don't have their voice. You know, so if you're, you know, you're doing, let's say, 19th century history of northern New Mexico, uh, often a lot of those voices are just disappeared. So, That's you know, right. whether it's you know, the women's voice, the minority voice, or the children's voice or whatever, and, you know, history, as they often say, you know, gets told by the victors. Well, we need to figure out what our stories are, first of all. And that means engaging the museum community and the historical world and the universities and whatnot. And then, we, and then figure out how to package it in an appropriate way uh, uh, for tourism development. And it's hard work. I always say to communities, don't think you're going to, this is like a silver bullet. And if you do this thing, uh, it's going to, you know, be better, it's going to make better economic uh, uh, benefits for your community. That might be true, but it's, 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 it's a work that's always going on. You're never under attack. <laughs> you know this, you work in the environmental world, right? That the land is always under attack. Yeah. Somebody always wants it. Right. So even though you think or even though you think, oh, we got this set aside as a national monument or something, you know darn well that somebody might someday want to reverse that. Or, or challenge that. Right. I'm just going to say that, that that's a constant issue. I think it's a really good point that you bring up because it's, it's a constant issue when you, when you, you, pr- you protect a place or you achieve this, there's, it, it, the work is constantly ongoing. You, you always right. have to um, go to the next level and, and, and take it further because that there is always someone who's out for, to, uh, to, to exploit and to utilize that. I'll just tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, I was I was out at uh, Zuni Pueblo, and I got talking to one of the Zuni artists out there, and he he was an abstract painter. That was his thing. That was how that's how he saw himself as an artist. That was what he did, and he was bemoaning the fact that that his art his art form basically sat in his garage in his home, unsold, collecting dust, because the tourism industry, the tourists, the people who expected, uh, to, who came there, expected to find, quote-unquote, Indian art, not uh, an, uh, an Indian who was an artist. And so, right. he, so he spent a lot of his time making uh, the, the, those typical things that people buy when they go to Zuni, and he was he was quite frustrated by it. He was saying that um, the tourist trade, tourism in and of itself, crafts the culture. 
um, mm-hmm. and and yeah. doesn't allow the culture to flourish. Instead, it kind of keeps it in a box. And I did wrote a couple articles about that after that encounter because I thought it was so interesting. So, so my question is: is how do you utilize the uniqueness of a of a place without boxing in the culture or the cultures and keeping them from developing, uh, de- de- yeah. developing in terms of just evolving. Oh, it's a great question. And it, and it relates to more than tourism. That's for sure, Jim, because you know, when I worked at the humanities council, we, we would have this conversation from time to time because people were coming to us for, yeah, you know, they had proposals and they wanted to do a, they wanted a grant to, you know, do an exhibit about their town or do a, a documentary about their place or whatever. And you often have these conversations about, are you just perpetuating this sort of, you know, stuck at the boxness that you're talking about, you know, fixing a, a culture in place, or are you allowing it to evolve? And, I mean, I'm certainly of the latter, you know, category that, uh, I mean, cultures are, are sort of social ecologies, right? They're like, like the environment itself. It's always changing. Right. We, but we allow the land, you know, in the environment anyway, we allow the land to to change and evolve of its own volition, right? The, the way the parts work together and whatnot. And we need to do the same thing with societies to allow them to evolve. I have a good friend who does what your artist does. And my friend who lives up on the Nava up, up near Flagstaff, he makes casino dolls, but he makes them out of really abstract glass. They're, they're beautiful, but they don't look like the casino doll, you know, you see at the, the, the tourism shop uh-huh. or, or whatever. But that's, that is part of the whole conversation about what is your story, because there are people that want to fix it, right? They say, well, this is what people are coming. People are coming for Kit Carson or whatever. You know, they want to fix that story. And then they also don't want any negative uh, chapters of that story to emerge. Right, they, right. speaking you know, they, of Kit Carson. Yeah, exactly. And in, in the environmental world, we call that greenwashing, which is to lie a little bit about the environment and to use it and to exploit it. And then sort of the cultural world, it becomes, there are all kinds of terms for it. It's obviously whitewashing, and sometimes people talk about bluewashing, which is to really hide the the uh, parts of the story that you don't want to share with tourists because they're not, you know, they're not. So, uh, and let's face it, anytime you're talking about the history of the Southwest, you're talking about Native people, uh, there are some bad stories there, you know. Oh, yeah. So it's... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> figuring out... How do we tell those stories without, you know, dumping on previous cultures with, you know, sharing them appropriately? And, I mean, your question is one that we're always going to be struggling with. But that's why we need people who do that work at the table. When we're talking about tourism development, we just can't have the tourism industry sitting around figuring out what's Taos' history. Because right. that's not what they're trained to do. So that's why we need the people from the museums and the tribes at the table and whatnot. And certainly on the reservation, this work is even more sort of central and sometimes sensa- uh, uh, controversial. Because, and this is one of the things I'll say to communities. I'll say, okay, you have this little, sm- you have this small little town here, and you want to use, you know, you want to do tourism. You think it's. Uh, you know, it's a way to do economic development. Your 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 other jobs are gone, right? They're not lumbering anymore. The mines have shut down. And what do you got? Well, we have this interesting, let's say, cowboy history or Native American history, and we can package that and sell that. And this is a very com- this is very common across the West. Is our sort of extractive forms of uh, economic development have died out? And they're trying to well, what fills that gap? 
and many towns turn to tourism. And what I'll tell them is I'll say, think of your town like it is a reservation. You know, Think of your town like it is a national park. What would you do and not do then in that community? And so whenever you're having a conversation about tourism on the res, for instance, it's a very serious conversation about should we allow this product in? Does it does it in any way uh, ruin our, uh, our our land? First of all, is it you know environmentally destructive, or could it be destructive to our our culture and our history and our rituals and our spirit and our and our story? So it's a very serious conversation, and I've sat in on uh, you know conversations with you know a lot of the a lot of the reservations have tourism right? They have tourism offices and chambers of commerce and whatnot. And it's a very heightened conversation on the res. And I say, well, you know, that same kind of conversation should be going on in Taos or Seco or whatever when you guys are having the conversation about tourism development. Does this initiative that we're thinking about, uh, does this product that we're thinking about building, does this effort that we're thinking about marketing, does it in any way ruin the very thing that people are living? As we were saying earlier, these are tough conversations. There, there seemed to be, in the early days of this kind of work, uh, let's remember how new tourism is, by the way, Jim, and new in the, in, the, in the sense that we're talking about it now. People mm-hmm. have always traveled, right? They've gone to see the pyramids or whatever. Right. Uh, and, you know, in the 19th century, rich men did the tour of Europe and Asia and whatever. So people have always traveled to experience other histories and other cultures. But this idea that we have these offices in our communities, like at the at the city level, there's probably, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, and one of their things is that they do tourism development. The idea that we invest money and time and thinking in how do we package our town and then attract people to come and experience it, that whole idea is happened within our lifetime. You know, the fact that we teach tourism now in college and we teach, you know, hospitality programs uh, and that we invest money at the state and city. And we don't have a federal office of tourism like most countries do, but every state has. So this is all my point is this. A lot of this is very new stuff. We're still learning how to do it. And I think early on it was, oh, let's just put a bunch of money into developing this product. People will come and they will spend money. And they will leave, and it'll you know be all hunky dory. Well, we found out that there are a lot of consequences there that we weren't thinking through, and certainly Aldo Leopold did. He wrote a great essay in the twenties after he had been uh, director of the Chamber of Commerce in Albuquerque about what he called booster spirit, which was about the people who right. only wanted to grow Albuquerque and they didn't want to preserve Albuquerque, and uh, that's why I consider Leopold the, one of the fathers of what we would today call, you know, ecotourism and cultural tourism, because he didn't have those terms then. But he was essentially saying to the people of Albuquerque, you have a great history and culture and environment and architecture and land and language and food here. It's unique. It's distinctive. Build on that. And what he was faced with was boosters who just wanted to tear down the old Albuquerque and make it look like every place else. Right, and that's one of the unfortunate things in Albuquerque. I I lived there for quite a while, and uh, you know, the, as you well know, the the downtown area, um, you mm-hmm. know, in the sixties yeah. and seventies, they they took down a lot of those historic structures, and uh, with the thought of we'll, we'll create room for economic development and new buildings, and they've they're still empty. They are still parking lots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have the same. I think it's a common story throughout. 
the West, Jim, but we have the it same is. history in Phoenix and Tucson. Of You look at these pictures, even from the 50s, of what downtown Phoenix looked like, and there were some marvelous structures there. And, you know, they were torn down to make way for, a, you know, a, a, often a baseball stadium or something, or, you know, just some big office building because somebody made an argument that we would employ all these people here or whatever. And now we look back and think what we lost. Right. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate. I live in a historic structure. It's one of the first historic structures in downtown Phoenix. And today, it's a landmark. <laughs> and those, you know, in Albuquerque, those few neighborhoods that they did save, now, they're landmarks. They're right? landmarks, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're tourist attractions. Yeah. And you know, what, what if we had, you know, given that more thought <laughs> in the beginning, you know, we'd have these, I mean, you go to places like New Orleans, and they've got that great Charles Street just all these old homes and you know darn well back at some time somebody wanted to tear them down and oh know, of course a, yeah of course whatever yeah dan in the last few minutes we have left um mm-hmm. i, I want to ask about how this is something that has been part of the discussion here with these different planning organizations from main street to strong at heart um that i'm very curious about is you know we have it's just speaking of evolution of our town you know we have what are considered the three um, cultures of Taos, which are the the Native Americans, the Hispano population, and the uh, the the white population. But we also have a fourth and very important part of of our town, which are the more recent immigrants who are, by and large, from Latin America, Central America, Mexico, um, who play a, a vital role in our community economically, but don't really have a voice yet as far as the direction the town's going. So so when you think about a town is what what is our story? That mm-hmm. encompasses history in a way. The question is is how can we talk about uh um the town of Taos and what is our story and include the more recent immigrants to this mm-hmm. town? Well so, some of this is just practical, Jim. I, you know, I often uh, you know, I'll go give a talk and I'll say, look, you need to set up. And by the way, this is, this is something that every town needs is something like a place committee. Uh, you can give it whatever word you want, but we need that committee, that organization, that civic structure where people do come together to have these conversations about place. And this is why, like, the people in the land trust and the natural folks nature folks, they need to get out of their silos, too, because you know, sometimes the people who do land trusts and, and national parks and state parks, they're not talking to the museum people, and they're not talking to the arts people, and they're not talking to the Main Street people, and none of them are talking to the to the residents. Right. So we need, and that's one of my, when I, you know, sort of leave my uh, to-do list with communities, one of the first things you need to do is set up something like a place community, a sense of place community. I often encourage them not even talk about the word tourism, because that'll turn some people off. You don't want to say to the community, oh, we're having a, you know, a, a town hall on civic tourism. That doesn't mean anything to them. But if you talk about we're going to have a town hall in the direction of our community and how to help us build a strong and healthy community environmentally, ecologically, socially as well, that's really what this place committee is all about. But, yeah, there needs to be that opportunity. And, you know, just think about it. Sometimes they'll say, okay, we're going to have our place committee civic, you know, town hall Tuesday at 2 o'clock. And it's like, well, think about when people work. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, don't just aim it for the people who work in this industry, whether it's tourism or, you know, community uh, land or, or culture or whatever, but 
the, the folks you're talking about, the workers, actually, you know, right. the working in the day. You know, so have your meetings in the evening. Have your meetings on the weekend. Have food. Meet them. Go to their communities. Don't just have it at the city council or whatever. You know, nope. Go out into their communities. You need to be proactive, basically, is what I'm saying, and yeah. not just say, oh, we're going to have this meeting and come, but you need to give them a reason to come, and that is how do you frame it, how do you talk about it, and then where do you meet them? So, you know, some of our work, you know, Jim, is just very practical stuff, like, you know, what time do you do it? Do you have food? You know, what, what's the conversation look like? How do you engage these people? And as we were saying earlier, you need to keep doing it, because if you do a meeting and, you know, nobody shows up, you just can't say, well, we tried it. <laughs> right, you keep going. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's hard work, you know. Uh, the, uh, Scott Sanders, who I love, wrote the introduction to my book, says the work of building a place is never done. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge. And on that note, Dan, we've got to leave it. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for coming to our town, uh, as you have, and 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 helping us uh, work through some of these issues. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, and and thank you, Jim, for the good work that you all do over there. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.